caught offside with Andrew Gunling and JJ Devaney. Oh, yes! Caught offside from the Upper West Side of Manhattan, Andrew Gunling and JJ Devaney. What's up, man? I'm good, Andrew. How are you? Feeling good. You should be. Feeling good. Nice the, weekend uh, for you. Sure was. Sure was. We're going to talk all about what you're referencing, Tottenham, with probably their signature win, certainly under Mourinho, probably of the season as well up to this point. Uh, we will talk about that in just a few minutes. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the U.S. men and the January camp coming to an end with a 1-0 victory over Costa Rica, but not just about that, also about the um, some of the persistent attendance issues with these matches and whether or not this is just like because these games are truly meaningless or whether or not there's like a deeper issue here. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, I have a red card that when I mentioned it to you before the show, your eyebrows raised. I can't always tell if that means you're interested or you're surprised with me and an opinion. That no, I'm just have. curious the route in which you're taking this okay. red card. I can never tell what you think of me and my opinions. You're hard to read, honestly. I think I've much. I think that. much of you. Even now, I can't tell. Uh, and then we have a very interesting guest, um, Adam Crofton, who writes for the Athletic. He's going to join us because ever since Brexit happened, and while we don't really do much politics on this show, uh, ever since Brexit happened, we've been getting a steady stream, I would say, of tweets or emails from people just wondering what sort of consequences there will be with regards to that and the Premier League. And I'm going to be totally frank with people. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to speak for you. I don't have those answers. Well, I uh, discovered, and this is what piqued my interest even further, was that Irish players, young Irish players, who have gone to England at 15 and 16, um, for the last century to play football now may not be able to do that. They may not be able to go to the city and Liverpool and right. academies and our, our youth systems rather. And um, that kind of makes me wonder what that means for the rest of the yeah. world. And Adam wrote an excellent piece in The Athletic in October talking about how football was preparing for this this Brexit. And what what would happen? And now that Brexit's happened, I guess I want to know what is the state of play now for for English football. Yeah, I think we need to get a good sense of what is fact and what is fiction with relation to how this is all going to impact the Premier League and how Megxit is going to impact the Premier League also while we have him. If you ask a royal related question, I don't know what I'll do to you. <laughs> we are we are a serious podcast here. We are talking We've about always said that big issues. We will not be talking about the Duchess of Sussex and her, in my view, betrayal of the crown. Oh, wow. I'm an avid royal watcher. (laughs) Uh, Let's go right into the soccer. Uh, I'm very excited to talk about this. I haven't had a week where I felt truly excited about coming on here to talk about Tottenham (laughs) It's amazing. You you get an unexpected win and away you go. Well, no, no, no. I, I think that I'm mostly tempered with how I view this. But let's talk about Tottenham 2, Manchester City 0. That was probably your surprise result of the weekend. I'd say no probably about it. Um, definitely your surprise result of the weekend. Uh, and like I said, this was kind of the moment or the win that Spurs needed. Um, not just like in terms of battling back into the top four, but I think of getting morale around the club, within the club, back on the right side of things. Um 
you know, there was talk behind the scenes of discontent among certain players. I think in the end, we've kind of sussed that out and see now that it was really just Danny Rose. Um, he was moved on to Newcastle. He was clearly not happy with Jose Mourinho. Other players since then have said he is basically an island of one with those opinions, that there is not discontentment within the club. Whether or not that's lip service, I don't know. I'm going to choose to believe what we're hearing coming from players on the team. You obviously are smiling smugly at me. It's really just your face. This is your face that I see. I'm sure many other people see other JJ faces. I only see one face with a smug, S-eating grin. (laughs) Said face is to smug. Yes, and that's the face that I have come to know and and hate, quite frankly. Uh, Let's talk about the game. Uh, I want to start on the Manchester City side of things, because I I actually think that might be the more interesting side Mm. of this. Um, I saw Paul Merson said something on Sky Sports. Merce? Yeah. Um, He said this. I'll read the quote. He said, uh, he's talking about Pep Guardiola, and he says that he believes Pep has been found out. Uh, I think he thinks I'm that attacking that I do not have to play with a center half, but he has been found out this season. Um, well, Merce puts it in such he paints such a stark picture there that this is a manager who believes center halves are surplus to requirements. That's not true, right? Uh, but I would say we flagged in our previews that it would only take one injury. And the house of cards would fall because it, w- it would take a piece out of midfield. Then the midfield is, is, is weakened significantly. And so it has proven to be. But that doesn't mean he doesn't believe in centre halves. I mean, he, he quite clearly does. He, he's bought one. You know, he's bought a young, talented one from Spain who, unfortunately, has got injured at this point now. Yeah. So I, I don't buy that. Uh, what I would say is that there should have been more, more urgency. In, in their transfer dealings over the summer. But again, there couldn't be. They were under the financial fair play spotlight. They wanted to be at least, you know, l- attempt to look like they're living within their means. And so they didn't get one. And if if, if Merce wants to say the centre half issue has caused a problem and an imbalance in the side, then I would buy into that to a certain, to a, a large degree. Yeah. Uh, I think. The other thing, if you wanted to support what it is that he's saying, I think you could at least say this. Uh, if you look at Manchester City's squad, they're kind of like too deep at pretty much every single position. I mean, straight from, from back to front, like, you know, Aguero, Jesus. Like, they, it just feels like they have cover for pretty much every spot on the field. And yet, once you get to center half, it feels like they only have one in Laporte. And even he, by the way, I sometimes wonder if he's necessarily as great as we sometimes talk about well, him being. So, like, they have other positions where they can lose a player to injury and the drop-off is not steep. At, at that position, they're already weak, and if they lose one, like you said, the house of cards come crumbling it's, it's down. It's amazing in these few years, not to cut across you, but yeah. how, how we've discounted John Stones. You know what I mean? Like, I, Well, he has not developed the way that they thought he would, and, he's, and he has either plateaued or is maybe even moving backwards. Right and now. an international World Cup starting centre-back in Otamendi is just... Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And, and and they definitely should have addressed it. Yeah. Now, here is where I think people need to pump the brakes. Uh, don't you feel like a snowball is starting to roll among this kind of anti-pep sentiment? Yeah, I, I think you're, you're... I mean, to say he's been found out, we hear this all the time about him, you know, fraudiola. Whenever there's a little dip in results, we see these these kind of things. And I don't believe it to be the case but I you know I do think and it's something we pointed to before uh, and I 
PepBot 3000. You know, they are such an oiled machine. Mm-hmm. Pep talks all the time, and he talked in the, in the post-match, in the Spurs post-match, about precision and how they have to be so precise. So if anything slightly misfires, then the team's in trouble. But let's be honest, they could have been 4 nil up at halftime. Comfortably. Yeah. They missed, they, they missed penalties. They missed time deliveries. They, they, they missed penalty. Penalty. Sorry, excuse me. They missed penalty. They, <laughs> Sterling is lashing at things that we've become accustomed to him being much more of a refined finisher in the last while. He's fallen off, by the way. So you're looking at Aguero carrying the can for the team. Didn't work out for him. And then you have a red card. And straight after the red card, Tottenham get their first shot. Their first shot. Didn't come until Zinchenko committed that second uh, yellow. Right. That was it. So it was a systems failure from beginning to end with them. And... uh, but but Spurs that's the thing, had, though. I, I don't know that it was a systems failure from beginning to end. Like I actually look. I, I think you have to look at the game. They've in, got to in score, two, Andrew. Well, I know that, but I think you have to look at the game in two phases: pre red card and post red card. Yeah. I mean, look. You can say systems failure from beginning to end, but did anyone watch from minute zero to when did the red card occur? Like the sixtieth yeah. around there. Did anyone watch that hour of play and think, "Wow, City looked bad." No, and that's your so point. How much of a failure it. is it? No, no, no. I mean, it's it. What, well, ultimately, it is a failure. If you're not putting away a team like Tottenham when you're that dominant, and you're having what? What did they have? Seventeen or nineteen shots? Something like that. Spurs had three shots total, three on target, two goals. I mean, the ultimate in in. It's amazing what Tottenham. Not to like look bigger picture here for a sec, but <laughs> across these two games, Spurs took four points off City, and what they scored four goals on what? Like five shots? Something like that. Well, City probably City have something like forty shots across those those two games with two goals to show for it. It's I mean, if you look, if you go on and look at the XG for the for both games combined, it's staggering. Well, and it certainly would have been weighted heavily after this one with City having a, a missed penalty. Yeah, so I suppose systems failures in the correct. I mean, I get what you're saying. You have to finish your chances, the otherwise synapse, none of it matters. At the point at at the point where everything comes together, you know, the Andrew, you've got the phrase for it on this podcast. Podcast, bip, bop, bing, bum. And unfortunately, the bomb bit at the end where the cutback comes and inevitably it's either Sterling or Aguero rolling at home didn't happen. I know. Look, and I do want to give Tottenham some credit. I don't want to say that this is all luck. I mean, Hugo Lloris is Tottenham's keeper. Like, he did make a great save, sticking a leg out, knocking the ball off the post. You know, but then you have some chances. Like you said, the missed penalty, it's a great save, but there's 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 an element of, of some luck to a penalty being missed, especially when it's poor like that, especially when the rebound, I really, I thought it could have been, I was almost surprised that wasn't ruled a penalty in its own right. Yeah. The rare double penalty. You know, you have Aguero missing shots from point blank range. De Bruyne missing a shot from point blank range. It could have been, it could have been a lot different. City didn't take their chances, but I don't know that I look at that performance in City so far this season and, and say, blow it up. I don't think that oh, that's, no. I don't think that's my feeling on this, and I would keep Pep as the manager. I don't think that like he's going to he'll, he'll change certain things. I'm sure they'll buy somebody. Leroy Sané is still on this team. He'll come back in some form, or if they want to sell him and use that money to buy a defender, you know, the, I don't think that this era of Manchester City is over. No, and I just think that Pep will look with envious eyes, obviously, towards Liverpool and think how Liverpool's injuries have been managed. 
I mean, that's the that's the big contrast. The most expensively put together project in English football history can't absorb the injuries that they've had at center at center back. You look at Liverpool; they were able to to figure out injuries. Now, obviously, it wasn't to the key Virgil Van Dijk at, at centre back, but they had injuries at centre back. They were they were able to work their way through. Gomez came, coming back at the right time as well helped. Look at the midfield. Liverpool absorbed the fact that they lost Fabinho. Mm-hmm. Henderson slotted right in there. I mean, it's a flexibility thing. Yeah, maybe I- for Manchester City's long term success, they need to find a way to be more flexible. Maybe it's not a, a so much a a body count having so many players but rather m- more versatile players. And then there is the Tottenham side of this, JJ, which I am obviously excited to talk about. Or not. We'll see how this conversation goes. Here's what I will say about it um, without really talking much about the Josie Mourinho stuff because I don't even <laughs> I don't want to talk about him. No, okay. What I, what I want to talk about is this. We have said repeatedly that in Tottenham's heyday under Pochettino, in their effort to really go for it, they remain static in terms of personnel. They didn't make any signings, which is obviously well documented. But what we've come to find out now is, um, perhaps more importantly, they also didn't let anyone go. No, like Christian Eriksen, they wound up having to lose for maybe seventy million less than what they would have. They did a very poor job of recycling the squad. And so, with that thought in the back of my mind, I'm watching the game over the weekend, and what am I seeing? I'm seeing Tanganga in defense looked like as a young player who's been thrown into the fire with his first game against Liverpool now he's playing against Man City I'm seeing him play really well I'm seeing a brand new signing like from a day earlier basically in Steven Bergwijn come over from PSV and score what was maybe Tottenham's best goal of the season so far and what proved to be the winner um, against City uh, over the weekend I'm seeing Tangi and Dombele come off the bench and for whatever we want to say about him in terms of injuries things like that uh, I still maintain that when this guy is playing and when he is healthy, he looks uh, to me. He is the player, maybe more than anyone on Tottenham. That if I were buying stock in, I'd buy stock in him because okay. I really think he's exactly what they need, and I love his game. And then I'm seeing Giovanni Lo Celso, who for the better part of maybe two weeks now has maybe looked like Tottenham's best player. I just rattled off four guys there who are new to this squad and who look like they could provide some sort of instant impact. If not necessarily this season, these are young players who in the next two three years are still reaching their prime. And you've got Son popping up with a goal. You've yeah. got veteran center has and a veteran goalkeeper delivering. So I would say that while they have clearly taken a step back um, last season and into this season, there's no question about that. Champions League run aside. Um, you know, you can... I, I really feel like... I don't want to look too deeply into the outcome of one match, but I really feel like in looking at some of these new players who are all very young, 23 and under, uh, I didn't even mention guys like Ryan Sessegnon, who's starting to get chances here and there, who scored against Bayern Munich in the Champions League. You know, I, I feel like you can maybe start to see the seedlings of what we're talking about when we say you need to recycle your squad. That this these new, this kind of next wave of young Tottenham players are now being kind of like immersed with guys like Son and Harry Winks yeah. and, and Alderweireld and more established players. And I think this is this is what we've been saying they needed to do maybe two years ago. They're doing it late which, in the game, but it's still good that they're they're doing it now. And which our dearly departed Maurizio wanted to do, but wasn't allowed to we do assume. it. We assume. That's what he was asked. Or that's what he told us. He, he wanted change. He wanted to freshen things up. He didn't get the cycle that he wanted in. Uh, you, you see all that and you still hear the manager in his post-match press conference talk about how he wants... To bring in a centre forward, someone who can release pressure. Um, They're kind of playing without a true one right now. Yeah, 
Uh, but so why do you go out and buy a 22-year-old winger? I mean, I, I mean, the totally qu- normal question the to question ask. To- I have to believe that two things are true there. A, I, I, I've got to think that the market for a quality center forward who's good enough to unseat, you know, uh, Lucas Mora or Son, however it is. Well, or you were in for a gallo, I believe. Maybe they didn't value him. It would. I, I don't know. But like, I, I have to believe that the market for that is a little tighter considering the emphasis on that position yeah um and that players who play that position well enough where they'll slot into a squad like tottenham like okay you can go get one but you're going to probably have to overpay look i still i think there's enough talent in this team to be and from what we've seen from the new signings looks it looks exciting um it's just going to be markedly different from what has gone before it and i wonder had murcio pacchettino been given such treasures what would he have done with the team? That's that, that's the question I would have asked. I mean, would he have played Bergwijn right away? I don't know. Maybe would, not. Would he have given Tanganga his first start against Liverpool? We, I, we I don't know. It. We're speculating. I'm just I'm just wondering with all this with, with this talent that Mourinho has, what he does with it now is the key question for me. That and my and also my key fear. I saw something. I have. It's funny whether I've wanted to or not. I have now kind of moved myself perception wise into the. Uh, Josie Mourinho loyalist camp. Uh, and I've said repeatedly that I don't even know what I think of him yet. My stance has been it's too soon to judge. Mm. Let's at least get to the end of the season and then start to talk about it. Um, but whatever. In in feeling that way, you you kind of by default move yourself into the side that you're defending him. So what the hell? I may as well just go all in. And I may tell you that I saw a uh, a Premier League table of what it looked like from the time Mourinho was hired by Tottenham to where we are today. Liverpool are obviously first. Manchester City are second. JJ, would it shock you to know that Tottenham are third in the table from the day Mourinho was hired to now? Uh, considering Leicester had their mini slump within and, and Chelsea's inconsistencies, no, it wouldn't shock me. That has to say that has to say something. Well, can I can I shock you? Sure. We're we're in the shocking mode. Why not? Let's shock. Uh, Saturday morning, my girlfriend, who who you know is a huge Spurs fan, mm-hmm. approaches me and she goes, oh, how do you think the game's going to go? And I'm like, I f- no, it was Friday actually. Um, and I said, I fancy, I fancy Tottenham. And she goes, what? And I said, I do. And she goes, why? And I said, well, City aren't quite at it right now. It's just not going right for them. And Mourinho can still deliver these kind of results. Now, I didn't think it had happened in the fashion that it did, and certainly the red card made a huge difference, mm-hmm. but it happened. So that would probably shock you too. Well, I'm curious, what is the fashion that you thought it would happen, if not one well, where they again that they defended, w- got fortunate with City missing some opportunities, and then struck a couple on their own in the last 30 minutes? All like that. It, it almost feels like it followed a formula. All that minus the red card. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, speaking of the red card, I mean, look, I'll give credit to Harry Winks. He made a great run, and Zinchenko. When you're on, I just sometimes want to get into the minds of players. Like I talk about some of these things, like guys who commit. I talked a couple years ago about how it drives me crazy when a guy has his back to goal in the box, he's not doing anything, and a player just fouls him for no reason. Like I want to get into the mind of guys who do inherently dumb things. Like if Zinchenko, you're on a yellow. You understand how the game is called. Any sort of contact in open, in like an open field situation like that, and you know you're being sent off. Like you, how, you just if if you, have you to could find forgive a him, you could forgive him if when he because it's shoulder to shoulder. You can forgive him if that happens right when the 
Tottenham players in possession of the ball, but he's kicked the ball forward. Why doesn't he just go stride for stride with him? Just right, funnel him towards a corner, just or something. Do anything, but again, there's um, and it's not just Manchester City. There's there's the element of the of the tactical foul there, where you see everything open up, and you're like, well, I better do something here to stop it. I'm all for the tactical foul. I'm not. Not when you're on a yellow. Yeah. Not when you're on a yellow. You just have to find a different way because you can't allow your team to be down a man for 30 minutes. Say what you want about Tottenham. They're still a solid team playing at home. And now you're down a man for 32 minutes or whatever it was. Although it was so funny. Mourinho's reaction straight after the second goal goes in was to supremely shut up shop. Attackers came off and midfielders came on and they settled into this kind of, uh, into this bank of, of ten, I know. Son runs over to him to celebrate. Yeah, and, and Mourinho grabs his head yeah. and is screaming instructions Starts into there. Yeah, because we are now we have what we want, boys, and now the shell. Well, and again, if we like, we can use that as fodder to mock him because it's what we do. No, but but, but in that but isn't but you're up two goals against City with ten minutes to go. Isn't that kind of but what in you that do? moment of yeah, you're up two nil against City who have who are down to ten men. But like, let's just You're not. But there was never the thought. It, it's what um, it's what I read from Jonathan Liu in his piece a couple of weeks ago. The opponent is always dangerous. The opponent is always more likely to do something than you. That's just the mindset. <laughs> opponent focused. I, it's it's. I think it's wrong that we, especially after a game against Manchester City. I don't care that they're down to ten men. I think it's wrong that we use that as as ammo to mock him with. I'm not mocking him. I'm just saying. I'm just talking about the mindset. Uh, anyway, yeah. Uh, let's see, JJ. We'll talk about the U.S. in just a sec because I have some thoughts on that. But before we do that, JJ, I need to tell you something. I need to tell you that hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. And growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. You know who did that. Cafe Altura's COO Dylan Miskowitz experienced how challenging hiring can be after unsuccessfully searching for a director of coffee for his organic coffee company. But then he switched to ZipRecruiter and saw an immediate difference. And you can, too, by signing up for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash offside. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. And its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job so you get qualified candidates faster. In fact, after posting his job to ZipRecruiter, Dylan said he was amazed by how quickly great candidates were applying and found his new director of coffee in just a few days. Results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within just the first day. So here you go. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash offside. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash offside, O-F-F-S-I-D-E. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Maybe a little Latte Larry. He could use some of that Dylan Miskowitz uh, coffee luck that he got on ZipRecruiter. He needs scones. Scone he, luck. Have you been watching Curb? I think it's. I think the season has been very good so far. I, I find it hilarious, but it's like turbocharged complete, compared to like what it was 10 years ago. It's like he's had – I get what you're saying. Um, he's had all these ideas building up in his head and he's just – They're all coming out Firing them. Because he, he probably is going into every season thinking this could be it. So like why leave anything off the table right By the now? way, he's so right. You can't – do anything other than eat an apple blithely. <laughs> you can't eat it aggressively, passively. It's just blithe. Yeah. Yeah. This, I'm sorry. The scene of them chipping their teeth all talking with a lisp was 
It was phenomenal. I couldn't stop laughing. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about the U.S. men and the January camp. It ended with a 1-0 victory for the U.S. over Costa Rica. And I, before we even start, I just want to throw one thing out there because I texted you um, – and your response was similar to that of many people's responses. It was dismissive. It was cold. It was. Um... That's the response you get from anybody who texts you. So don't worry about it. <laughs> and it was basically to the effect of, "Yeah, but who were they playing?" And okay, all right, fair. No, but I want to read something to you because I think it's important. Uh, let's see. Allow me to throw you under the bus I... before I read something that will prove you're you a fool. You are being thrown under the bus. You have to be. For your dismissiveness, um, I just want to throw out there the um, this from Jeff Carlisle, uh, who wrote about Costa Rica. Manager Ronald Gonzalez's lineup featured six players with at least 36 caps heading into the match. This included a pair of players who had tormented the U.S. in the past in Johan Venegas and Marco Ureña. The rest had at least appeared internationally before. Contrast that with the U.S. Uh, and the fact that their lineup had just four players or four players making their international debuts. The minute I saw Iran in the lineup, I was like, oh, oh okay, this is actually, this is... Costa uh, Rica were, were now you're right, uh, you're right in that it was obviously, if we're playing Costa Rica in a World Cup qualifier, their lineup would look different than what it was. But mm. to say that it was their C or D squad that the U.S. beat, I think would be inaccurate. Um now, how important you take all this to be, like a January friendly against Costa Rica's B team or B minus team, whatever you want to call it to be. I mean, that's up to each person to, to decide. But all I'm, I'm just putting that out there to say that the the general dismissiveness that we sometimes get for a lot of these U.S. friendlies, I think, maybe is not always super and, fair. And I think some of the optics from the game, the fact that the U.S. kept the ball very well, dominated possession, it's not something we can rarely, it's something we rarely say we do against teams like Costa Rica or Mexico, but we did it. Um, they 17 shots, 13 from inside the box. That was good. Now, we could, have, we could have done with converting some more, but that's a team that hasn't ever played together. It's a youth side. Um, I think the team was probably more in sync with what Bearhalter wanted, considering the extended amount of time they've had in camp together. So he's hammering home his key points and his coaching points. And they come straight out in the field and they delivered. They looked more comfortable than the senior squad, if you want to call it that, have looked under Burrholder's tactics. I think for Jason Christ, it's huge. So many of those players are probably going to be able to feature in the, what we expect, we don't know for certain, in the Olympic qualifying, which now we feel like takes on more import. Um, considering our recent struggles as a nation. They've got to be playing in as many competitive tournaments as they can. And yeah. You're right. They, start, they started six players who are Olympic qualifi- uh, qualification eligible. I think seven overall. Uh, seven players were given their international debuts for this yeah, halter team is, in this game. So it's good. Yeah. I think what's interesting to me, and I don't have a ton to say about the game because there yeah. wasn't a ton in it. I mean, Costa Rica sh- definitely should have scored... Um, Sean Johnson was beaten all all ends up and the crossbar came to the uh, the Yanks rescue. Mm. But the question for me is, so take someone like uh, Lionez who scores the penalty, big moment for him, 18 years of age, doing really well in the U19s for Wolfsburg. Um, how is he going to be, outside of the Olympics, potentially, how is he going to be part of the 2020, 2022 qualifying process? Will he be a part of it? And you look at the forward line and you think, well, maybe there's room for a player of his skills. Uh, you look at Josie Altador is coming back. We don't know how he's going to be used by Burhalter. Bobby Wood is 
in some kind of limbo. Know, yeah. He's rejected a move to FC Cincinnati, apparently. And, you know, there's there's different things happening up front. Could a player, a young player of his skills, be useful as a forward for this team? Will Berhalter be willing to dip into the reserve team or the youth team of a Bundesliga side when this player hasn't played senior club football? You know, it, it, it's great to have these young players in, but... It's hard to know in the immediate unless he's fast tracked. Say, for example, they really like, I think he's got 10 goals in 11 games or something for, mm-hmm. for Wolfsburg. Maybe they want to bring him forward and uh, bring him into the first team. Then that changes things for Bearhalter. But otherwise, I still think it's going to be a lot of the same guys your Jassy Zardes, your, your Ariolas, your guys like this who are still going to be mainstays under Bearhalter. The other question is, you know, maybe Jesus Ferreira has or Jesus Ferreira has a better chance. He's just got a citizenship. He's more established with FC Dallas. Maybe he's someone that Bearhalter looks at from this camp and thinks, okay, I can use him. It, it can only help to have as many young players playing well as possible. Um, there's, not- such, I, there's such, for me, there's such a degree of difficulty with these games because they're good. The working camp's important. I do believe that. And it's good for Bearhalter to see as many players as possible. But when it comes down to it, are they playing with their clubs? What's the highest level they're at? Mm-hmm. And he's probably going to go with the vets for this campaign, rightly or wrongly, in, uh, in some cases. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, it, it's good for a couple reasons. A, because like sometimes like when you're talking about guys like Lainez, you're right. I don't know. I have no idea what his role will be in terms of immediate qualification. When I'm, when I'm talking World Cup, he might have a, a bigger role for... Olympic and if he has a, but if he has a good Olympics, then you're in a situation where maybe he gets bumped forward in the in the Wolfsburg team, right? And bang, he's on the bench or he's starting for the U.S. team in qualifying. It can change very quickly. Yeah, two. Th- I mean, two things about it are true. In that, it's good because when was the last time we went into an important U.S. match of some kind where injuries weren't playing a dramatic role? So just like increase your pool of available quality players as much as you can, and the best way to do that is by giving some of these young players a chance. And like the other thing too is. You know, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but like some of these guys, it's it's probably not just about 2022. Like there's a there's a bigger picture. It's about beyond that. Like it's just mm. about knowing that like there is a pipeline that had gone completely dry from what would you say 2014 through 2017 with the with a couple exceptions. Like there was a pipeline of players that just for whatever reason seemed to disappear and it affected them greatly when we got to quali- qualifying for a World Cup. Like I don't feel that way right now. I feel like there is now, you know, if you want to include like basically the Adams McKinney class up to now which you would include like Serginio Dest Pulisic is kind of a thing unto himself but I just right. feel like there is there is a, a pipeline of talent now that has kind of like repopulated itself that was not there five six seven years ago yeah and I'm constantly forgetting about players because we we've actually got a lot in Europe right now who are either playing like Jock Sargent is fairly regularly for his team in the Bundesliga or Pulisic for Chelsea and then there's also this this underclass of players that are coming through at PSV, at Wolfsburg. I really think... Look at, uh, look at uh, Conrad De La Fuente, who has just signed his contract at Barcelona. He's got a three-year extension with Barcelona. He's going to be promoted from Barcelona's under-19s to their B squad, which is like the, the third tier of Spanish football. Um, so, And he's, he just turned 18. Uh, this this is all good things. I said before about Tottenham that if I could buy stock in any player right now, it would be in Dombele. 
Um, I have one in mind for the U.S. I'm wondering – I'm putting you on the spot right now. I'm wondering if you have anybody that if you were buying stock in at this moment, who would it be? Mm. See, I haven't seen enough of them. That's a problem. I, I will say that – so it's February 4th, 2020. So the World Cup is in two and a half years. Almost three actually because it's going to be in the winter. Yeah. Um, I have a feeling that Gio Reyna's name is going to become a big one for – if it's not already for American fans. I think if you can fast forward his trajectory and the club where he's at that is so adept at bringing through young talent, uh, I really think in two and a half plus years he is going to be starting for the U.S. and, and be a true impact player. And no disrespect to Tyler Adams or McKinney, he might be – the X factor in that he can do things that they can't do. We also don't know yet where Tyler Adams is going to be playing. Well, yeah, I mean, it depends what day we of the week know. you ask Greg. Yeah. He seems to like him at, at in that right back position, which I'm I'm not sure about. But regardless, uh, back to Gio Arena. Yes, like definitely. Yeah, you're. I don't know why I even paused when you think about it. Look at the youth. That's look look how young he is. Look at the way he's been catapulted into that Borussia Dortmund team. He's all, I mean, there's a lot of promise there, and I, he's my guy. He's my guy that I'm latching on to. Now, we're talking about a lot of the good things. I do want to at least mention, like, I'm not blind to the fact that there are still concerns. Um, in watching some of what went on with this January team and just kind of like looking at the bigger picture for U.S., it's funny because like it wasn't a lot of the regular players um, playing in this, but I feel like some of their deficiencies mirror that of the regular senior team players. Final third finishing, mm. it's all it's been a problem for a long time for them, uh, and I think that is that's still a thing that I don't look at a, a single player necessarily and say that guy will will cure that problem. There's but we've there's even an seen issue there. We've even seen in the youth tournaments over the last five six years that I've been paying attention. I've seen American teams create a lot of chances in games, not take them, and then be beaten. Yeah. Like, it's it's a regular occurrence. Yeah. And then I saw at MLSsoccer.com, Matt Doyle mentioned this also, and I think that I kind of wanted to emphasize that he referenced transitional defending as a thing that worries him. And, again, that has been another concern of the U.S. for, I'd say, a long period of time. And I Ca- still— Caught on the break? Yeah. I still feel that, like, you get these situations with, you know, Costa Rica or who, Panama, whoever— where like it's two U.S. defenders tracking back with like two Panamanians running at them, and you're just you tense up, you get nervous because we've just seen too many instances where this team has a, a hard time getting back and limiting those opportunities. So those are the couple things right now. Uh, one other thing that I wanted to mention from this, JJ, there is an attendance issue happening right now with U.S. soccer. Um, the attendance for this one, I don't, I know a day beforehand it was like. 6,500 tickets had been bought. Um, I don't remember exactly what they announced. And then we saw tweets, say, people saying that there was, if there was 1,000 people, it was good. I'm hoping there was more than that. A couple things here, because I've been trying to think about the contributing factors to this, because this is not a one-off. Last year, a year ago at this time, in Greg Berhalter's first game against Panama, uh, the attendance was something like 4,000 inside of that, the stadium in Glendale that seats like 75,000. It looks ridiculous. So number one, maybe play some of these games in venues where like, you're not going to have these horrifying optics. Um, play in some of these MLS venues. I think that... I mean, this was in an MLS No, you're right. Venue. That's true. I guess I'm thinking back to that one. Um but then the other thing here, I've been thinking about 
the money element of this. Uh, and I saw this written at uh, the18.com. He said, tickets for the USMNT Costa Rica friendly start at $25, but once you tack on those convenience fees – uh, that always gouge you. You're looking at thirty-one fifty before considering cost of transportation and parking. While not absurdly expensive, considering it's a meaningless friendly with both teams focusing on Olympic qualifying more than senior team performance, a lower price would definitely draw more fans. Um, and then Stu Holden took it a step further. He tweeted, uh, tickets for January camp matches should be next to nothing. Encourage families, young kids, whoever, to come and support the USMNT. It should be about exposing new fans to the senior team. Price them at 10 to $20 and consider it an opportunity to grow the game as opposed to making money. Yes. That's it. But, but it's so obvious. That's it. It's so obvious, not, Andrew. Not to everyone. You have in front of you the, the ticket map, right, of what, yeah, the of most what prices ex- cost uh, throughout the stadium. The most expensive was $300. Who's paying that? Like... How can they, like, how can you have it in you to feel okay about charging somebody that price for a game of this sort of consequence? Marco Arena is amazing. And he <laughs> I, is, I would pay to watch him. Um, $30 was the, ch- uh, no, 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 excuse me. 25, 25, is, the 25 is the cheapest, which is 30 once you tag on all the fees. So It's unconscionable yeah. to think that it's okay to charge $300? That was the most expensive, yeah. I don't know what comes with that ticket, though. Maybe you get a shoulder massage. I mean, you should be you should be invited to play. You should be given a jersey. <laughs> yeah, it's a camp game. It's not even in really in an, it's not even in an international window. It's just it's just the way it falls in terms of MLS starting. It's players, by the way. It's players in preseason. Yeah, but it's also a tone deafness. In that they get caps for those games, right? Yeah, but it, it's it's a tone deafness, not just in charging three hundred dollars for a January camp game, but like think of where we are right now in U.S. men's soccer. This is a, a weird low point, maybe coming out of the low point, but like you know, enthusiasm is not high. Recognize that. Recognize that that like this is not coming off a successful World Cup run or a Gold Cup victory. Even you know, this is like a team that is clearly rebuilding. So to charge that kind of money for a January camp, it just shows total obliviousness to a situation. Ugh. You know what? I, I, like, I hear stuff like that, $300 for the most expensive ticket. So that means like a regular ticket is what, 50 60 70 Yeah. So, I mean, was, like, uh, I'm glad then. I'm you, glad you, that you, you, got it, you got the full price range from 25 up. You got your 30s and your 40s and your 60s and your 55s. I mean, come on. Like the, the only – then good for U.S. fans to not go. I hate to say that because I want the team to be supported. These are young players who are trying to you know, make a name for themselves, and I want them to be supported. Um, but, like, the only way something like that can change is if people don't show up. Not, not for nothing, though. I mean, you hardly heard a beep about it. It was on ESPN News and streamed on ESPN+. Plus. I mean, yeah. it, it was not promoted at all. No. So. No. Uh, I'll tell you what. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, a few other things I want to talk about from over the weekend in the Premier League. We're going to talk with Adam Crofton about some of the lack of clarity over what Brexit will mean for the Premier League and, I guess, European soccer overall. Red cards, man of the match, a little mailbag where we're going to mention 1917. You saw it. I'm excited to talk to you about it. All that and more. Don't go anywhere. Back now, caught offside, uh, Adam Crofton from The Athletic coming up in just a little bit, talking about Brexit and its potential impact on the Premier League, I guess English football as a whole. Um, so we'll we'll get to that 
with uh, with him. JJ, a couple other things from over the weekend that uh, I wanted to mention, aside obviously from just the Tottenham-Manchester City game. Um, Chelsea, again, now look, Leicester City are a good opponent, so 2-2 is not, there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, but I don't know, just like thinking of where Chelsea were two months ago and seeing where they are now, and I can... You know, I can put on American underpants with the best of them, but this can't just be about Christian Pulisic. Although not Lampard being has said right. that, that he feels as if they've missed him, he he said, "Of course we've missed him. He's a quality player." Yeah, and but I, something seems off there. I'm not sure if you look back over the season in its entirety, the result at the weekend is some. You know, I think it's in in the pattern they've been inconsistent. Um, they have a four-point cushion in fourth place, so Lampard afterwards wasn't he wasn't terribly downbeat and kind of recognised that in the end maybe Leicester could have nicked it. He thought a point was a fair result. I think um, he dropped Kepa. Yeah. Felt as if there's been a problem with the goalkeeping there. He dropped Kante much deeper, he said, to pick up uh, Madison and kind of stifle Madison. And he played Mason Mount much further up the field than he usually would as well. Um, I don't know. They needed. They felt like they needed a striker over a striker over the January. They didn't get one. Um, I, th- I think they're kind of just. I I don't see m- major troughs or major peaks for this team. I know you think there's something's that something's off, but they kind of feel like they've been this since the opening day where they got smashed by United. I, I guess so. Now And the results kind of bear that out. In 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 the I was looking today at the XG table as you can probably tell it's the second time I've mentioned it. They're third in that. Okay. You know, so they're, you know, they're creating chances. There's been some criticism of the younger players, particularly um Tammy Abraham. Yeah, I, I don't think I smell whatever you think is quite off with them. They've well, been that. I guess you you mentioned Abraham Mount. You know, we were so excited about these young players earlier in the season, and I just can't help but wonder if maybe some of them are hitting some kind of mid-season wall. Yeah, and guys the, who are who are getting well, minutes. Lam- in strenuous situations that maybe they're not as accustomed to and they're feeling the effects well, of that. Well, Lampard looked as delighted as his players probably do for this break that's coming up now. Yeah. And he said, you know, we need to get away from each other. He said, we just need to, to take some time. He welcomed the break. He thinks it's a good idea. It's good for the players. He, You know what he did say, which was interesting? He said the players would have time off and then they'd come back and do a mini preseason because... That's well. That sounds to me like if you're taking time off and in the middle of the season you need to do preseason stuff. Total reset. Yeah, means like you're letting them lie on the beach, yeah. eat whatever they want, drink whatever they want, and just completely decompress. So yeah. maybe you're right. I I mean, it's really the first full extended seasons in the Premier League for Callum Hudson Odoi, for Tammy Abraham, although he did play in the Championship, Mason Mount. So maybe maybe it's Tamori. Yeah, Rudiger um, did return. He, Lampard, thank God he did. Lampard seemed very pleased about that. He scored both their goals. Yeah, and I don't think they've been great defensively either. I know there's a kind of a focus on further up the field, but I don't think they've been great at the back. So yeah. I don't personally. I don't know. Um, 
because this is just the Chelsea we've been presented with this season. Yeah, and by the way, we mentioned Pulisic. We should mention that it was bad news with regards to his injury. Uh, Frank Lampard said he suffered a setback. He hasn't played since December 26th. Um, he's got some sort of leg muscle injury situation. Lampard said, we tried to get him out there last week, step it up a little bit, but we had to pull out of that. Um, the break might have come at a good time. It buys us a couple of weeks. So, I don't know. Don't, I don't like know. this. I don't know when we'll see Christian in the lineup again, and that is not awesome no. in any way. Um, Manchester United, interesting end of the transfer deadline. A flurry of activity. They do, in the end, go out and they get who appeared to be their top target throughout in Bruno Fernandes, slotted straight into the starting lineup, um, played maybe a little bit more in a defensive midfield role rather than... Uh, towards the end, you're right. Yeah, he, he was... Um, I read Andy, Andy Mitten's report on it, and it certainly kind of correlated with the highlights that I saw. He started further up the field to begin with in an attacking role and then had to drop back, which is a worry for me because I'm assuming they want to utilize him further up the field and link that attack That's together. That's what I thought. That's what he was. So they need to f- figure out a way in which he doesn't drop deep foraging for the ball. That's Or maybe... I think what Andy suggested was that Solskjaer made the change to push him back deep into a deeper position. So, I don't know. You like the signing? I have seen him live in preseason at Yankee Stadium, Mm. albeit, and uh, he looked good. He looked very good. Um, He looked, if you look at any of the highlights from the Portuguese league, he looks looks excellent. I worry about a player that's already been to a top league and then goes back back to Portugal... I mean, he's 25, 26. There's a, there's a part of me, I'm in this mindset of players trending younger and you, you get those signings younger and that almost 25, 26 doesn't feel young. He, he fulfilled. Well, you're not buying low. No, no. Um, but I don't know is, is the honest answer. And, uh, I'm excited as much as a Liverpool fan can be about seeing what, what he brings. Yeah. That was, a, I mean, as far as nil nils go, um, it was an interesting game over the weekend with United and, uh, and Wolves. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you what, this, there's, we, we do talk about Wolves, but there's a name that we don't talk about enough. And just watching the game, I was kind of just totally taken with this guy. I thought Ruben Neves was fantastic. Um, and he's, for me, he's probably one of the more underrated players in the league. Um, well, you, the Wolves fans started chanting at Fernandez after a while that he was just a <laughs> Ruben Neves. <laughs> so that was, uh, that was that was pretty funny. I was thinking about something watching Wolves, and I'm starting to come up with a list in my head of the scariest things you can see uh, watching a Premier League game. And by that, I mean this. Like, if you're a Manchester United fan... I know what's coming. I think the sight of... Adama Traore on the ball running at your defenders is terrifying. Like, that would be high on my list of scariest things you can see in the league. Also on my list, like, you know, watching Tottenham and City over the weekend, Kevin De Bruyne standing over a free kick. It's one of the most terrifying... If you're playing against him, it's one of the most terrifying things that you can see. I'm trying to think of some of the other ones. Uh, the ball in open field. Uh, you're You're on the attack and you lose it outside your own box and Liverpool go on the break. Those, right, those three guys running at two defenders. Terrifying. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm going to try to think of some other ones because I think that's that's a good start. Uh, speaking of Liverpool... Oh, before we oh. get off Wolves, oh. just quickly before yeah. we get off Wolves. Um, interesting signing made by the New York Red Bulls. Uh, Kevin Thelwell mm-hmm. has joined as sporting director from Wolves. Um, he was also on the board of directors at Wolves. So... 
all of a sudden ends up in New York. You can only say that what's happened to the club, the transformation of the club under his watch has been unbelievable. At Wolves. At Wolves. Yes. And you won. How much do you attribute to him? What do you mean? You know exactly what I mean. Jorge. Yes. Okay. But now, You're right. He's there. So he... Is there some kind of... Like, why is he leaving Wolves to yeah, come to the Red Bulls? I don't know what's going, gone on there. And the Red Bulls... Maybe it's because his position at Wolves has become... I don't know. Like... Usurped? Maybe, un- unnecessary? kind of, I guess, what I'm, what I'm getting to. Maybe. I don't know. But... It's curious. Something I, to keep an eye on. One of my eyebrows was raised when yeah. I saw it. Uh, Liverpool, JJ, they steamroll an informed Southampton team. I saw something on Twitter. Um, I don't know how reliable necessarily. I, I think it was from Odds Bible. Um, and they tweeted that Jordan Henderson is currently the odds-on favorite to win the PFA Player of the Year. Really? Yes. Wow. Um, it's been talked about quite regularly and I think so if you look at what he's done this season let's let's go just back a little bit into last season he's kind, he was kind of unleashed by that positional change and Fabinho being more settled in the role that he previously had mm. and then Fabinho gets injured and he comes in and doesn't miss a beat does a brilliant job he's added a few goals in as well and he, he's this leader, he's this captain on the field, and that, I don't think he's Liverpool's most important player. I saw you, I love when I can be a bystander to one of your arguments rather than a participant, because yeah, yeah, it's yeah, fun. Yeah. And I saw you locked in a war with someone over the conversation of who is the greatest Liverpool captain. Oh, this guy, would, oh my God. Well, yeah. it's because you met someone who would... Would not allow you to have the last word, and I know how you... No, but my problem was his time parameter. He was like, of the last 30 or 40 years. Yeah. If it's 40 years, you're going back to when Graham Souness was winning European Cups and was captain and was winning leagues too. If you include that time parameter. That that was my only argument. He, he is actually a, a fair point. If you're just going to Alan Hansen, like if it's th- if it's thirty years, but if you're going thirty or forty years, you're traversing. All right, well, let's keep it at thirty. Oh let's yeah, keep it. W- that's w- that's that is up for debate. He's really past Stephen Gerrard. I don't think he is, but it's certainly a debate. When the Premier, you see, the Premier League is going to be so weighted. It's the thing Gerrard couldn't get, and Henderson's done it. But, but can't we can't we believe for a second that if it was Gerrard in this? spot and not Henderson with Klopp as his manager and with Mane and Salah and Firmino in front of like we can't for a second think that Liverpool wouldn't be achieving the same level of like like that they would be worse somehow with Gerrard as opposed to Henderson <laughs> but, but yeah but that's that's how it's that's why it's it's hard to it's hard to do these things um it's hard to make these comparisons for me Henderson has been you know for me he's been impactful really over the last two seasons I mean, Gerard. But he wasn't even really a regular first team player last season. Um, yeah, he was. Am I thinking of two seasons ago? I'd have to it's, look up and see how many starts he had last year. Oh no, he was okay. He was. Uh, you could you, you couldn't put him down as a peripheral figure. Certainly. Um, you, what you're thinking of is when Klopp Klopp had taken him off early in a couple of games. Even last maybe that's even it. last season, and his reaction wasn't great. Um, but certainly in terms of. Like I, I remember being in 
in in Kiev and scrolling through my Twitter after the Champions League final mm-hmm. and they'd already put together a compilation of why we can't win a Premier League or win a Champions League with Henderson in the team. Amazing. F- ama- right? Fast forward a year later, what's happening? So that transformation has kind of thrust him into this conversation, is, is how I would As the put best it. player in the league. As the player of, not as the, be- as the player of the season. Now, I, th- I mean, if you've got Trent Alexander-Arnold in that team, you've got Van Dijk that could go for it again. Say, you've, even... got, you've got Sadio Mane, you've got, um, yeah. Salah, like we don't. I feel what like about we, what we about Ali, the what urge about to a, talk about Salah? Salah. What about Alison Becker, the goalkeeper? I mean, like, I guess it goes to show why they are as good as they are. Because how many how many legitimate candidates do they have on one team to win this award right now? It's right, ridiculous. but but if you're asking whether the conversation about him being in the mix for PFA Player of the Year is real, then all right, it is amongst the fans at least. Wow. Uh, and then last but not least, uh, from one Liverpool club to another, Everton. Haven't been a ton of moments for Everton fans to celebrate this season, uh, but over the weekend was perhaps one of them coming back from two goals down to beat Watford. Uh, Theo Walcott playing the role of hero, a sentence that I don't think I've uttered since he's made the move. No. 2-0 uh, down, and then in the last few minutes of the first half, scoring two goals from Yerry Mina from, from corner kicks. Great. But the way they won it, was amazing because it was right in front of the away end. So the ball squirms out, ends up at, at Walcott's feet, and he he still it's one of those where he's got to score, but at the same time I'm not I'm not confident. And he slides it home and he wheels away and the Everton fans go absolutely crazy. Yeah. And um an explosion of joy. Yeah. And I was happy for our friend Doug. Yeah, yeah. Cause I know when, he was happy. I when, saw some of his text messages. When that went two nil, that did not look good no but they found a way so props to Watford we got a mailbag in just a sec but first JJ I have more things to tell you everybody wants in on this podcast our popularity in the advertising world is it's out of control quite frankly Uh, JJ if you don't know your numbers you don't know your business and that is what NetSuite by Oracle has set out to solve because most companies don't have a clear picture of their finances and that's why many businesses fail The question for any business owner out there is, are you confident that you've got the right numbers at your fingertips? Serious entrepreneurs and finance teams run on NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. NetSuite offers a full picture of all your finances, all in one place, in real time, right from your phone or your desktop. No more guessing, no more worry that what you don't know could kill your company. That's why NetSuite customers grow three times faster than the S&P 500, and you can too. So here's the deal, everybody. Schedule your free demo right now and receive their free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash offside. Set up your free demo and get your free guide today at netsuite.com slash offside. netsuite.com slash offside. O-F-F-S-I-D-E. Mailbag time. What do you got? Um, I'm a goofy gunner. Uh, I'm a Goofy Gunner contacted us just today, but I'm using it as a segue into the conversation about 1917. Oh. Uh, how would you rank it with other war- World War films? I'm excluding all war movies um, because we could go on forever. Okay. So. It's very close to the top. Uh, of any war movie for me, it's probably yeah. one of the best I've ever seen. Yes. Um, it's utterly relentless. Yes. The time flies by so quickly. And the way it's shot, you're on the journey with the main protagonist. 
and it was let me just give you a window in window into my watching experience i watched it at uh, the nighthawk in park slope in brooklyn lovely theater an eating theater so not one of your favorite ones but whatever well it's not that i dislike them i just don't think it's necessary to so, pay more well whatever i get there early and um i'm flicking through my phone and i'm 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 watching the brexit celebration celebrations by those who wanted to leave i i must point out that not everyone was celebrating and it was just um it was weird to see people talking about getting their country back and 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 sense this sense of national pride and and often in song referencing two world wars and world, one world cup mm-hmm. and i found this weird and then i i stepped in to watch um 1917 and it was like this mythos of not mythos it happened but it it, it was just this um clashing of of english realities then and now and, and and also some of the things that the people on the street were referencing um very much this national nationalistic fervor um and i i sat in and i watched the film feeling kind of i don't know i was in a strange place because England leaving the European Union is... Great Britain leaving the European Union is a huge deal. I don't care what anyone says. And um, I got into the film and it just absorbed me straight away. It took me right back to that time. And um, ugh, Sam Mendes has just done such an unbelievable job. I do feel like with war movies, we're now in a place where like the, we're continually raising the bar. This to me is is a step beyond anything I've seen before. It really is. And um, it makes you emotionally invested. And be- again, I'll say the nature of the sh- of the shooting of it. You're on the journey. I there's and I'm not giving anything away. At one point, the personnel carrier, the truck that's going across the hills in France, gets stuck in the mud. And that to me is such a minute detail. It almost seems unnecessary to show this, mm. and it shows everybody getting out and everybody pushing. And the camera angle and the way it shot, I was nearly up out of my seat as well. Helping them. Helping them. Brilliant film. Absolutely yeah. brilliant. By the way, I want to say personally that I'm hurt uh, because I had said to you that I wanted to see it a second time and I would go with you and I didn't receive a call, a text message, nothing. So really, uh, no, you, uh, what, you, what you've done here has been damaging to you and I personally. Uh, what else you got? <laughs> um, I seized the moment, Andrew. Uh, Ali. Uh, hey guys, big fan of the pod. I've been listening since the week leading up to the U.S. men's national team losing to Trinidad and Tobago. Oh, what a fun week! Times. What a week for the pod to start listening, though. Oh my god! So I feel like you and I have been on this journey to fix the program together. You always make the fans of the game and of your pod feel heard, myself included. I've interacted with you guys a few times on the Twitter machine during the Philadelphia Union's playoff win and December's El Clasico. I can't say that listening is always enjoyable as I was raised on Manchester United, so being reminded of their form or lack thereof makes me cringe. Fair. I always thought I'd eventually send you an email, but not under these circumstances. The past week, you both touched on the tragic loss of Kobe Bryant to the sports community and the entire world. Moments like that truly do wake you up to hold those closest to you a bit tighter. The week prior, I suddenly lost my own father. He was a cheerleader during my playing career, a companion to Union Games, and a fan of the game as a whole. He was infatuated with Beckham and Scholes, so I spent a lot of time watching Man U as a child, but interestingly enough, he never claimed United as his team. He lived for for watching strange matchups and taught me to be a fan of the game in its entirety. 
I wanted to thank you both for making the Premier League more enjoyable for me and never forgetting that some things are bigger than soccer. You've been of great reprieve during a difficult time for me as I'm sure you've done the same for many others. Wow. This was a very long-winded way of saying you're doing a fantastic job. Um, thank you. Thank you, Ali, for, for letting us know about, about this. And I, again, I, I often say this. Um, with the Kobe stuff, it's death. And part of what resonates with what happened to Kobe Bryant is because it can happen to any one of us or to one of our loved ones. And so it brings it closer to home. And I, I was, when I got this email from Ali over the weekend, I was kind of shocked by it. Because I don't think that our podcast has anything beyond the blatherings of I know. of two people down a microphone. But it clearly does. And for that, for, the, for you to tell us that means a lot. And um, obviously our condolences to you and your family. And um, we hope that this podcast um, continues to give you some kind of solace. By the way, uh, real quick on Kobe. Did you see at the start of the Madrid Derby, there was a minute of silence? Yeah. I mean, I just like I'm seeing that. I'm thinking, just how many athletes have that kind of reach? Like he had Kobe Bryant had no ties to Atletico Madrid or Real Madrid. No, like I don't. Incredible. It's amazing, and it goes to show the power of the NBA. We always talk about the NFL and the Super Bowl, but I do think the Super Bowl is the one night that you know unites the world. Uh-huh. The NBA seems to have. Even You're, there's more of a global reach than than we realize here, being in, a, in the U.S. bubble. Yeah, um, Dave Roberts contacted us. Um, not totally unrelated. In a recent podcast, you were talking about the debts of soccer players that shocked the world, the way Kobe's debt shocked the world. In early 1939, the greatest player in the world, Matthias Sindelar, died about nine months after his last game. Uh, Sindelar played for Austria, and his last game was against Hitler's Germany right after Germany uh, annexed Austria. A few months later, he, he and his finance, uh, fiancé were found dead. The cause of their deaths is still questioned to this day. Mm. I wrote about what happened in those last months and in the days after in my debut no- novel, The Paper Man, which, Dave, looks very interesting. Yeah. I think I'd like to give that one a read. I feel like I've heard of this person before. But uh, Wow. I don't, yeah, I don't and know. you know where I think I heard it? It was in like a UEFA magazine show. Oh, okay. So you heard it re- relate to you in Champions League voice. Yeah, right. And and uh, it's interesting that uh, David has, uh, or Dave Roberts, David Roberts. The Dodgers manager. Yeah, interesting. It's probably not the um, And I can't recall who responded to us, but one listener also liking the aftermath of Kobe Bryant's passing with that of Gary Speed. And certainly in okay. terms of within the game, it did feel like that. Uh, yeah. I feel weird about ranking... Oh, deaths. I know. You know. Like I know. We're just comparing. I know. You're right. You're and right. You know, I, maybe like I, I was about to say something, and then I like choke the words back because it's like feels weird to me to say that. Like no, but it, it it's just one of those things that happens. Yeah. And also the way we consume sports has led us to rankings subconsciously, <laughs> which is not. I, I am a big list guy, but yeah. not in circumstances like this. No, it feels really macabre. It and, does. Yeah. It does. Uh, Julia. Uh, I'm a huge fan of women's soccer, and so naturally I was really excited to see Christine Sinclair set a new all-time international goal-scoring record at 185, surpassing Abby Wambach. It got me thinking, I wonder how many women appear on this list before the first male player, who I understand is Ali Dai at 109, shows up. I took to Google, Google? Google, and was surprised and then annoyed to realise a search for top international goal-scorers only yields top male players. Then I decided maybe FIFA would have a list even though they might be the biggest sexist in all of football. Well, we I don't know about that. But their homepage had one story on women's soccer. 
despite an Olympic qualifying tournament happening happening as we speak. It was a fluff a fluff piece on St. Kitts and Nevis. No mention of Sinclair, let alone, let alone other players that might show up between 185 goals and 109. I wonder if you could possibly find a list. I'm frankly too annoyed to move on. <laughs> Thank. Thanks to you for both being articulate, funny, and not part of the sexist embarrassment that international football often is. Speaking of which, we should take this time to mention that the U.S. women were in action last night, also against Costa Rica, and thoroughly dominated them. 6-0, they topped their group for Olympic qualification. Kristen Press scored some Her more. first goal was awesome. <laughs> Worldies. Her first goal, I mean, a lot of the goals actually scored in this game were really, really cool goals. Uh, but her first one, fourth minute from, what would you say, 20 yards out, it's just such like a delicate ping to the top corner um, the way it just kind of bends around the keeper she was fantastic um, Sam Mewis scored a couple goals for the US Jesse McDonald added one it was uh, it was a thorough thorough it, beating and this team it looks is like they're just still humming along it is such a cakewalk right now but you should try and get catch some of the games because the goals are are pretty great um, there look anybody that's forgotten from over the summer they're still really fun to watch. Yeah, this team is so good. Uh, semifinal matchups are going to be determined today. Uh, so by the time you're hearing this, Canada plays Mexico on Tuesday in Texas. The winner of that will avoid having to face the top-ranked U.S. team. Uh, just, just to answer Julia's question, I don't have a list, and I'm not sure where you'd find it. Um, Meg Linehan on Twitter might be the person to go to. She may have access to such a list, or uh, Kim McCauley of SB Nation. Okay. Um, also, one other th- other curb-related thing. So, uh, Beast Mode Soccer put up a video. They're obviously doing some training work with our pregnant center forward right now. Saw that. And seven months pregnant, Alex Morgan. Alex Morgan, seven months pregnant, and doing little shooting drills. Yeah. Now she's not turning as sharply because, well, she's carrying a person, JJ. But the goals she's scoring, she's like. Leathering it into the top corner, bending it round, clipping it in off the post. Unbelievable. But the quick turns and everything reminds me of Larry David, where he, in, in the opening season of, or the opening episode of this season of Curb, gets upset because a pregnant woman is working out. And he's like, You're jostling the fetus. Yeah. So I can only imagine what he must think. As if he's some sort of authority as on if, what is and isn't good as for if a fetus. He knows. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's unbe- to see what she's doing, that, um, and, and and that pregnant is unbelievable. Finally, Brennan in Illinois. What, if anything, do we make of Mbappe's behavior after being substituted by Tuchel this weekend? Uh, you know what? Can we actually use that as a transition into this? Red card. Oh. Your segues. Oh, you what? are... Oh, what's he doing? What, what? A, what a pro. Oh, my God. Now, look, off of that, I don't want to necessarily overreact here. Um, but it just feels like when you're looking at PSG, there's a lot of like not good happening at this club right now, which is weird because they've actually been unbeaten in their last 19 games in all competitions. So how much not good could there really be? Well, here's what I'm talking about. Um, For starters, they won convincingly, again, over the weekend, 5-0. But as our tweeter or emailer suggests, that did not stop Kylian Mbappe from once again throwing a temper tantrum when being subbed out, despite the match being well in hand when the substitution occurred. Like, why? It's that uh, we've been down this road before with him. It's so unnecessary. You have bigger goals than what's going on in this game. Keep your eye on that prize. You cannot afford to get hurt in a game of of no consequence at that point when you are aiming for Champions League glory. So there's that. Then 
you have this controversy, JJ, of Neymar's, I don't know what they even call it, his white-themed birthday party on Sunday night, an event which Tuchel himself seemed less than thrilled with, given the fact that A, Neymar was just coming off an injury on Saturday, and B, PSG have another game today, uh, which Neymar has actually now been ruled out of because of said injury. Tuchel was quoted as saying before the birthday party, quote, is it the best way to prepare for a match? No, clearly not. Uh, And okay, if you want to find the silver lining in this, you could say, well, at least it could be some sort of cool team bonding event. That's Looks like a, a good time for young men uh, on the town in, in Paris in fashionable white outfits. What? Why but do you sound like a 70-year-old? Because I'm looking at the photos of these guys going into this, like what Marco Verratti is wearing. And Tragic. Like, and like people holding umbrellas for other – like it just felt like – like, I like to go out. I like to party. I like to drink and have fun. But I was just watching this event, and even if I were invited to it, like, there's no part of me that saw what was going on there and was like, wow, what a cool thing to be Like, it didn't <laughs> no, even look cool to me. No, none of it looked it cool. It looked like over the top. I don't know. It's just, like, not a thing that I'd even want to be at. But whatever. It, maybe it's some kind of fun. I did like, like Di Maria's jacket. The, it was kind of like a flowery. I've got that in black. <laughs> no, you don't. Yes, I do. <laughs> Please wear it next week. Okay, I will. Please wear it next week. Um Maybe this could be some kind of team bonding event. But then I saw that Mbappe, who we previously mentioned, did not attend. And then I saw why. Because former PSG midfielder Blaise Matuidi had a charity event at Disneyland Paris that night, which Mbappe chose to attend instead, along with PSG teammates like Julian Draxler, Presnel Kimpembe. So, like, they couldn't even all be on the same page for something like this. And, by the way, these galas, which seem to occupy all of PSG's roster in one way or another, occurred during a stretch in which PSG are playing six matches in 19 days, culminating with the first leg of their Champions League meeting against a suddenly very in-form Borussia Dortmund side. (laughs) Now, are any of these one things on their own particularly troubling? No, not necessarily, but altogether, maybe, especially for a club that has so underachieved in recent years on the European front. I mean, you know, did Neymar, like, have to throw the event of the year from one of the most nondescript birthdays that a person can have. What is interesting about turning 28? Nothing. Like, if it was 25, 30, okay, but, like, you had to throw this huge event in the middle of a jam-packed part of your team's calendar for turning 28? I don't know. Like, maybe none of this will matter, but if these guys are burning the candle at both ends with the Champions League beckoning, they better hope that health and results go their way. Because if they don't, this club has a lot of haters out there that are just ready to pounce with this as the ammo. Do you think it would it, it will matter if they go 1-0 down to Borussia Dortmund? Do you think the simmering resentments... <laughs> well, we don't know that the resentments, I guess. But do you think it matters that, oh, you didn't go to my birthday? I don't you know. didn't go to my charity event? I wouldn't put it past... I mean, look, the charity, event was, we had a, the charity event was Blaise Matuidi's, who's no longer on the team. So that's a little bit different. But some of these guys are clearly still friends with him, whether it be from when he was or from their time with him on the French team. Um, it's just like these competing galas getting in the way of, I don't know what, like it just, it's just... Meanwhile in Liverpool, you have Alisson going around baptizing the shit out of people. He can't baptize enough of them. <laughs> oh my God, he's like John the Baptist. Unbelievable. And if someone asked us, do you think that bonds the team closer together? You know, the fact that he's baptized Bobby and... um, I mean, for those guys, maybe. Other guys might think it's not for them. Looking at this Neymar party, what is the most, like, exclusive event you've ever either been at or invited to? Can you think of, like... Like, I was um, at a Super Bowl party a couple years ago in Minneapolis um, for... 
It was at Prince's estate. And it was Justin Timberlake hosting what? the party. It was a record release party what? for his last record. Yeah. A friend of mine got invited. And Peter Rosenberg got invited, had a plus one, and asked me to go with him. Oh, my. How Did you, you not know this? You've never told me that. You were at Prince's mansion. Yeah. Did you meet Prince? This was after he died, JJ. Oh, it was after? Yeah. So it's... So it's... Red- 20, it was 20... Uh, 20... January of... It was when the Eagles won the Super Bowl. So January of 2018. And you... I had to... You have, never told me this. No, I guess because two days later the Eagles won the Super Bowl, and it just like all that I cared about then was that. It but took that's it probably took, it, it that took might you be it. Uh, it took you long enough to tell me that you met Jay Z. You didn't yeah, just meet him; you hung out with him, played volleyball with him on yeah, a and then met him, island. met him later Beyonce on. Beyonce too. Met him later on in a club at a New Year's party. Yeah, but this Neymar's birthday, I had no interest in. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> when <laughs> you've been to Prince's mansion and you've hung out with Jay Z, Neymar, you actually you legitimately could have turned it down. You've better excuses than anybody in the world to say, I'm not going to that. Sorry, Neymar, I'm going to Justin Timberlake's record release party and then flying to the Dominican where I'm going to play volleyball with Jay-Z and Beyonce. People would think you're an absolute baller, but the truth is... These are all true stories. It's just weird, I guess, that I, that they've happened to me. Wow. Because I don't deserve any of this. I am jealous. What, what do you have here? Um, my red card is just a general thing. It's uh, YouGov. YouGov are a polling company, Andrew. They have probably spent the last three years, their busiest time ever, polling people's opinions on Brexit and no-deal Brexit. Where are but, we going here? Oh, this is where we're going. But they've they've dived into a, an equally contentious issue, VAR. Um, so they polled a group of football fans from around the country. And Gee, the, I wonder. The results are, are, uh, are interesting. Okay. But they kind of sum up what's wrong with this this whole conversation. Uh, VAR has made premier... This is from YouGov's Twitter. Because reading out numbers on a podcast is not fun, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but VAR has made Premier League matches less enjoyable to watch, according to 67% of regular viewers. Just 13% say it has improved the viewing experience. Football fans may hate VAR, but only 15% think it should be scrapped. Hmm. They think it has to change, though. 74% want to to keep it, but improve it, while only 8% want to keep it as it is. So how do fans think VAR should be improved? 81% say they should be able to see video footage at the same time as refs. Agreed. 80% want encouraging refs to consult pitch side screens. 73% time limit on decisions mm-hmm. and 71% want being able to hear refs discussions like you can and I presumably the rugby model would be the model they want to follow and uh, my red card with all of this is just that all sounds pretty reasonable yeah but they hate it but yet they don't want to see rid of it and that is the quandary we found ourselves in you know right. and Michael Cox writes a piece for the Athletic where he says he outlines everything he doesn't like about VAR and he said you know what the odd dodgy refereeing decision isn't so bad after all but people are just uh, yeah they don't like what it's done to the game yet they don't want to get rid of it which puts you in the position of let's make let's keep it and improve it try and make it work i guess Caught Offside's Man of the Match. JJ, we can't let this podcast end without mentioning what Erling Haaland is doing at Bor- uh, Borussia Dortmund right now. That, it's now seven goals in three matches for the Norwegian. Uh, this season, in all competitions with both Dortmund and Salzburg, he has scored 35 goals in 25 games. With Salzburg, he was averaging a goal every 52 minutes. With Dortmund, it's been one every 19. 
What is happening right now? Uh, former Dortmund defender Nevin Subotic, uh, now with Union Berlin, said that Holland reminds him of a combination of, ready, Lewandowski and Yang. That is a scary combination. Meanwhile, no one has said Van Nistelrooy. Uh, well, Subotic didn't. Um, maybe someone has. And who cares what you think, JJ? Oh, so is this you saying Van Nistelrooy? No, I I think his, his, his coolness in finishing reminds me a little bit of Van Nistelrooy. Um, yeah, he's... He's something else. Yeah, but here's the thing, though. This is now kind of morphing into more of a Borussia Dortmund uh, man of the match rather than Erling Haaland. Uh, Haaland was forced to share the headlines over the weekend as Jadon Sancho made a little history. He became the first player under the age of 20 to reach 25 goals in the Bundesliga, or the first non-German player under the age of 20. And Uh, who would have thought it would have been an English player? Because notoriously they don't travel. Yeah, but Sancho, Haaland, they're both 19. Like, this is Borussia Dortmund... Just in all their glory, added again. Look at you, young though. Players. Look at you in your red card man of the match, just basically setting up the Champions League game. There is a lot of intrigue around PSG and Borussia Dortmund. Yes, I feel like you're right. I am fair or not. I am crafting it into some sort of good versus evil. Um, Imagine you're the Qatari owners. And Haaland just bla- you've spent all this money on Neymar, yeah, and, and a nineteen-year-old kid who just like kind of came out of nowhere from Salzburg just destroys you. Yeah. By the way, we should say that the Bundesliga is currently everything that the Premier League is not. We have a legit four-horse title race with Bayern in front by just a point over Leipzig, while Borussia Dortmund and Mönchengladbach are tied on points, just three back of Bayern now, Munich. This is quite a race. Now, traditionally, and and when I say traditionally. <laughs> I mean, last season, this was the moment where Bayern Munich just clicked into gear, pulled away, and Dortmund stuttered. Now, the fact we've got... I don't see that happening. I'm going to be totally honest. I don't see that happening. I I would say for the Bundesliga, it needs to not happen. It needs to be really exciting. And who's to say that Leipzig is going to go away? Or even Mönchengladbach. But I don't know. Maybe it's just kind of like old habits die hard. I, I sort of feel like in the end, we'll be left with Bayern and Dortmund. Um, and I don't know. I really would be uncomfortable telling you who I think is going to come out on top in the end. Um, do you want to make a trip to Italy? Yeah, sure. Yeah, after no man of the match last week, Andrew, I am recentering myself, finding and engaging my core. I'm playing to my base here. I'm doing me, as the kids would say. I'm going back to what I know best, the volley. <laughs> Fabio Quagliarella scored this one for Sampdoria versus Napoli yesterday, and it's an absolute belter. Quagliarella tries to pull off his marker. Quagliarella hits it. It's brilliant. No celebration, of course. But it's an absolute beauty from Quagliarella. Uh, the ball is uh, clipped in towards Quagliarella and he moves towards the ball. So he's facing out the field as he turns, catches it on the full and buries it into the Napoli net. Uh, Sampdoria lost, though. <laughs> That's why he didn't celebrate. It's 4-2. They're in 16. But Napoli, Napoli... They put back-to-back wins together for nice person, Gennaro Gattuso, confirmed by uh, Gab Mercati on this podcast. They had lost four out of five of the new manager's opening games. So to go on a run of two wins was important. Napoli are nine points off the Champions League spots, but just two back from the Europa League as they sit in 10th. There you go. Red cards, man of the match. I enjoyed that. It's nice to have you back. Actually, you know, doing the work trying no 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 no. oh you're right you didn't really do the work no i just happened to see a goal and you thought you know what i enjoyed that i'm gonna just run with it no why not i just saw it and i thought i love that i often say i love the volley yeah 
It was a very go. Did you tweet it out from our feed? Because I think people would. I will do. It's it on, looks so effortless. It was effortless. Yeah. And uh, he's thirty-seven, by the way. And the most Italian-looking man I've ever seen. Like he looks. If I was building a prototype Italian footballer from the last thirty years, more than Pirlo. More than Pirlo. I didn't even know that was possible. I think so. I think more than Pirlo. I'm trying to think now of who the most American man that I've ever seen is. The most American-looking soccer player. Okay, we can confine it to soccer. Brian McBride. That's a good call. I think you. I think you just got it. It's like you were waiting for someone to ask you that question. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Hey, I've got something very good to tell you. Oh. <laughs> that hiring is challenging. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart, and growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. Cafe Altura's COO Dylan Miskowitz experienced how challenging hiring can be after unsuccessfully searching for a director of coffee for his organic coffee this company. This guy gets so many mentions on this pod. But then he switched to ZipRecruiter and saw an immediate difference. And you can too by signing up for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash offside. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. And its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates faster. In fact, after posting his job to ZipRecruiter, Dylan said he was amazed by how quickly great candidates were applying, and he found his new director of coffee in just a few days. Dylan's a real person, by the way. I know we've mentioned that before. It's been a while. This is not some, like, made-up thing. This is an actual guy at uh, this coffee company that did this. Um, With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Now, see why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free, free, at our web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash offside. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash offside, O-F-F-S-I-D-E. Normally, this would be the end of the podcast, but not today. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, Adam Crofton of The Athletic, he's going to join us for a really interesting conversation about the impact or potential impact of Brexit, uh, what we know, what we don't know about how it may or may not affect the English game and the game at large throughout Europe. So don't go anywhere. It's a really interesting conversation. You won't want to miss it. Oh, back now on Caught Offside. JJ, I referenced this earlier in the show. I'm very, very excited about this part of today's podcast because, like I said, we've been getting a lot of questions from listeners to this program about Brexit and not necessarily what it means for England and Europe, but what it means for soccer uh, and the Premier League specifically. Uh, and so we want to talk to Adam Crofton from The Athletic. He had written about this subject, and uh, we thought that he could be maybe a little bit more illuminating on it, certainly, than we could. Uh, Adam, what's up? How are you? I'm good. How are you? We're good. Yeah, I mean, JJ and I have kind of been, we, like I just said, we've been fielding questions from people on this, and we don't, we don't have a lot of the answers, I think, that people are looking for uh so that's kind of where you come in now before getting into all the details i guess of how the league and english football in general is going to be affected by this let's start with a timeline Uh, whatever changes are to occur when roughly would we see those go into effect i mean the truth is we still don't know um which sounds a bit i know that sounds um a little bit unhelpful given that we um you know the, the british government made a big deal of leaving on january the 31st uh, from the European Union, but in terms of its impact in in soccer in the Premier League, it's still difficult to actually establish a timeline um, in terms of where things will be impacted. So, if you take, for example, you know Gareth Bale, um, Welsh player, British player, 
playing in Spain for Real Madrid. Well, La Liga has quotas for non-EU players. We still don't know officially when La Liga will, you know, uh, designate Bale to be, for example, one of Real Madrid's non-EU players. Um, which I think, you know, once that happens, probably be the summer, you would imagine. Once that happens, it would actually probably hasten, for example, his need to leave the club because Madrid can only have so many non-EU players. Uh, Adam, you you made an interesting point in the article you wrote in The Athletic in October. Now, this was before we knew we wouldn't have a no-deal Brexit when things were a little bit up in the air. But you talked yeah. about the effect that a no-deal Brexit, or indeed a, a, maybe even this Brexit, would have on youth players coming into the Premier League. Can you, can you explain what the effects of Brexit may have on, say, younger players coming in, younger foreign players coming, in, coming into English Premier League clubs? Yeah, yeah. So, so this is regardless of whether it's a, a deal Brexit, which is the... So uh, just to explain to, your, to, your, to any listeners who aren't f- fully across it, um, a deal Brexit, which is what it, we now look to have, is leaving the European Union um, with a clear deal, um, and a no-deal Brexit would, would have been to leave and be on uh, WTO, World Trade Organization, terms, uh, which would have been far more damaging, um, at least initially, uh, for the UK. However, in this instance, with regards to uh, Premier League clubs, English clubs, signing players aged between 16 and 18, I, as far as I can tell, that is regardless of whether uh, Britain has a deal or doesn't have a deal because these are regulations set out by FIFA and it's all to do with European freedom of movement. Now, say for example, so when Arsenal, for example, signed Hector Bellerin uh, from Barcelona, um, they were able to sign um, so Hector Bellerin or other players that you know that many big clubs have signed over the years from, from uh, European clubs between you know, the age of 16 and 18. Then they were able to do this because of existing FIFA regulations. Now, however, that Premier League clubs are outside the EU, they simply will not be able to sign, you know, Real Madrid's next best 16-year-old, 17-year-old striker. So I think clubs in Europe are actually quite relieved about it because Premier League clubs have been able to um, cherry pick talent at the age of 16, 17, offer better wages. Um, so I think. It, a lot of clubs in Europe are probably quite relieved. Where it does make it more difficult, however, is if a, you know, a Jadon Sancho, for example, wants to leave Manchester City, go to Borussia Dortmund at the age of 17, he will now possibly be designated as one of the uh, quota players that I just explained about Bale um, for these European clubs. So that would mean um, that you're going to have 26, 27 uh, different EU member states who all will have their own uh, immigration guidelines which um, and work permit quotas and things like that, which will decide whether a young English player is actually able to play abroad. So I suppose worst-case scenario, it could also reduce uh, the possibility uh, for young English players to go abroad. On the bright side, you could say it may mean that because English clubs can't go and cherry-pick the best foreign talent at a young age, it may mean more opportunities for young English talent. Uh, Adam, one thing I was wondering about, kind of with relation to that, some of these giant clubs, Manchester City, you know, we know they have NYCFC here in the States. Red Bull has, you know, mm-hmm. like a network of clubs around the world. Is it, will it become kind of the new reality where some of these bigger clubs in England will set up, I guess what, for lack of a better term, would be these satellite clubs in other parts of the world as a way of almost trying to, like, skirt these rules? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's a case of skirting the rule. You know, these Red Bull and Manchester City satellite uh, City Football Group, you know, they came about long before um, it looks like a realistic prospect that Britain would leave the European Union. So I think that those are two separate issues. I think increasingly there is this sort of, you know, I suppose company sport model, whether it's City Football Group or Red Bull, that are looking to have, you know, the best place. Um, outlets all over the world uh, to have a you know a strong talent base and also to bring in uh, to diversify their revenue sources and sponsorship opportunities. But then what you're also going to have um, on on the other side of that is, say for example, Leicester City want to sign a 16 year old uh, from uh, uh, from France. They're not able to do that if Leicester City have a very strong relationship with a Belgian club in the second division, well, even if that's a satellite club or some sort of partnership, it could be that that satellite club signs that player, which therefore brings him closer to Leicester for when he turns 18 and then he could sign for Leicester. So it would be that's going to be one of the, I suppose, loopholes that clubs will explore. It will also be interesting to see if European clubs rebel a little bit against that um, and whether FIFA looks to tighten those regulations. Adam, you alluded to this, and I'm sorry that I don't have the article in front of me, but I've read so much about Brexit over the past That's three okay. years that it's completely it's completely lost. I, I can't reference it. But it was an article that suggested that the powers that be inside the Football Association at least are weighing up the positives of this for the English game in terms of young English players getting more time at their clubs. Um, have you heard anything from the FAA over the, the the past period of time that would suggest that maybe they're welcoming Brexit in some way? Yeah, I mean, it's quite interesting because sporting um, uh, sporting governing bodies in the UK have the, actually have the power handed to them by the government to set their own sort of quota and, and uh, immigration qualification guidelines, uh, which is quite a unique set of circumstances mm-hmm. for an industry. Um, what this means is that the FA and the Premier, so the FA, whose job it is, I suppose, to safeguard the future of the English national team, have a different set of priorities to the Premier League, whose job it is to promote you know, the 20 clubs that are in the Premier League at a given time. Now, of course, those clubs want to, you know, all have fan- fantastic academies and want to promote young talent and things like that, but their ultimate ambition is to make as much money as possible and ensure that the Premier League remains the most marketable league in the world. Now, the best they believe the best way to do that is to ensure that you have the world's best talent on your doorstep to then sell uh, sell internationally. I think what we're, what we're seeing at the moment is a bit of a tug of war between the FA and Premier League over you know, what, this, what these new guidelines should look like in, in a post-Brexit era, whereby, yes, for sure, the FA, I think, will be looking to you know, to try and guarantee that there's a higher number of homegrown British players within Premier League squads. You know, I know at the at the very start of the Brexit process, actually the Premier League sent an opportunity to say, because a lot of um, Brexiteers were saying at the time, we're going to have a, a global Britain. So the, some people at the Premier League thought, well, maybe that means we just need you know, absolutely no rules really about homegrown players because what we can have instead is... We can have more players from Brazil, more players from South Africa, more players from Australia, from the States, you know, uh, you know, from a, quite a young age. And you can bring those players, produce those players, rather than just focusing on the players on, on your doorstep. So I think the Premier League initially saw it as a fantastic 
international opportunity. The FA have seen it a little bit more as a domestic opportunity. And I think what will probably end up happening uh, to conclude uh, this very long uh, explanation is um, that we'll probably end up exactly where we were, um, whereby both parties think it's, you know, that, that what we've got at the moment is probably a reasonable compromise. If you're a foreign player now in a Premier League team, um, Adam, and I know we're throwing so many questions at you here, but do you have to apply to stay at the club now? If you say you're a player from from France or Germany, do you have to apply to the English government to stay with to stay settled or to stay resident in England at the moment? Or, yeah. or yeah, so, yeah, so, so, so a lot of uh, chief executives, sporting directors have all undergone. I suppose some sort of emergency Brexit legal training um, over the past year or so. Um, now, initially, that was because of fears of no deal. Now, what the British government has put in place is um, settled status schemes whereby you just have to apply. If you're an EU citizen, you just have to apply by a certain date and, and, and you can stay pretty much as long as you like. And you know, Premier League clubs, you would think, would, would be absolutely across that. All the information we've had is that clubs are pretty much across that and have been you know, doing that for players. So it's not a case of anxious weights and things and things like that. I think it's very different you know, when you're playing for, for Everton, Manchester United, Manchester City to when, you know, compared to you know, if, if you're an ordinary Polish uh, person driving a taxi in London, for yeah. example, you know, in terms of the, the anxiety that's been, been provoked by Brexit. Um, you know, ultimately, football... Is you know, I think it brings in something like 3.3 billion annually into the um, into the treasury um, uh, in, the, in the British government. So you would think the British government isn't going to do anything to jeopardise uh, that income, and that therefore means giving, you know, making sure that, that football runs uh, seamlessly. Hmm. Adam, one more from me. So. I guess just let me know if I'm reading yeah. you right here. So it, it sounds to me like when the dust settles from all this, uh, the status quo will probably remain in effect for what it is we know the Premier League to be right now. Meanwhile, though, if you are a British player who's playing outside of Britain, you may be somebody who is more affected by this rather than anybody within the Premier League itself. Is that right? Yeah, but like, but like I said, I mean, we still don't, you know, I'm very wary of making projections about what Brexit will mean for football when we don't know what Brexit will mean for anyone yet, really. Um, so, you, you know, what, what is quite possible is that what we've seen with other industries is that just investment may go elsewhere. Um, and invest, if investment goes out of the UK economy, then, of course, Premier League clubs um, will feel the effects of that, whether that's based on sponsorship or advertising. So that will affect revenues and therefore the ability to pay the, you know, pay major transfer fees. Um, However, you know, will, will it affect broadcasting rights deals? We, we don't know, to be honest. Um, but yes, certainly in the initial short term, I think the, the bigger, you know, if I was a player, I'd probably be a little bit more worried if I was an English player looking to go and play abroad, just because until the e- EU uh, nation states decide what what, what may happen, for example, is that it may just, you know, it may continue that there's a level of freedom of movement uh, between, uh, from a sporting point of view, but we don't know that. You know, everything that the British government is saying is that freedom of movement is going to end. So 
that will therefore mean that British citizens are you know, essentially in the hands of other nation states when deciding whether we're going to be let into their countries and the terms for which we can work in those countries. Um, so no, I'm sure you know, if there is another Jaden Sancho and Bayern Munich wants to sign him at you know, the age of 18, that the German uh, Bundesliga and the government will find a way you know, to make that happen because it makes their, their, their league stronger, their economy stronger. Well, we thought it would be less complicated at this point. That's what the politicians promised us, <laughs> and uh, here we are, Adam. At this at, at this point, uh, I'm, so, I'm sorry, I can't provide absolute clarity. <laughs> no, 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 Adam. Uh, your, your piece was brilliant in October, and I felt as it, well just with the way the Brexit negotiations were going. I, I thought it would still be uh, relevant when uh, when the the final leaving came about, and so it seems to be. Thanks very much for your time. Yeah, pleasure. Thank you. Our thanks to Adam. It's really interesting. There is still so many, so much unknown, I guess you would have to say, about how this is all going to go down. But I still maintain what I asked him at the end, that it sounds to me like whatever whatever doomsday scenario you might have thought this could lead to in the Premier League, I don't, I don't think that's going to be allowed to happen. Yeah. It's interesting, though, that the FA and the Premier League are kind of at cross purposes a little bit on this. They see the huge, the FA see the huge advantage in, in having more English players. Um, ultimately, money talks. So much money comes into the exchequer from football, and they're going to want to maintain that. The only thing for me is um, it just mirrors the uncertainty in the rest of society about Brexit and what it means going forward. Yeah, um, there's there's a lot unanswered. Yeah, the thing that I that I wonder about, like he talked about Gareth Bale, these players who are playing, in, British players who are playing at other clubs around Europe in leagues that have quotas on the number of non-EU players. Well, like suddenly those guys, like what what are going to be some of the opportunities for those guys and, and some of these clubs? And in- and we've been praising uh, people like Jadon Sancho for doing what other players wouldn't do. I remember we criticised before, were AC Milan interested in Jack Wilshere and he ended up on loan at Bournemouth? Right. And me and you were like, why would you not just go and try something different? And um, that may stifle this newfound um, wanderlust amongst English players, yeah. if that's the case. Um, we're stepping into the unknown with this. and um, But football as a cultural um, instrument... Will not be stopped. No, so no. That's the so way. I, no. That's the way I would see it anyway. Yeah. So there you go. Our thanks to Adam for joining us uh, to talk about some of that. My thanks to you, JJ. I enjoyed this. I enjoyed this tremendously. Great podcast. We, we we mixed things up a bit. Yeah. We're recording this before Liverpool's FA Cup replay. Will it bother you if uh, Shrewsbury Town have won? Are you hurt right now if that has happened, or are you? Uh... Uh, I think we're going to win. Okay. And um, I think. Uh, yeah, it's going to be weird not seeing the manager there who will be on a beach somewhere. <laughs> like uh, like a Bond villain <laughs> cackling as his minions go to work. Uh, this was fun to you, I say. Take you later, fun boy. See ya. Take care. You've been listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast. 